Hi, this is Nick Campbell. And I'm Andrea Pascal. And you're listening to In, In and, and Out, Out of Frame. Frame. So hey, this is episode two of In and Out of Frame. Uh, we're talking about Suspiria. Yeah, this is going to be a really exciting episode for us. We're going to be talking a little bit about the original Suspiria, Dario Gento's film from 1977, the new Suspiria from Luca Guadagnino from this year, both the soundtracks kind of just comparing and contrasting all of the things that went into the two films. So lots to talk about. And um, I guess the first thing we're going to do, though, is we're going to get into... Uh, the microwave snack. Yep, time to get back into the microwave cookbook. And, uh, and what do we have this time, Andrea? For this one, we have the very appropriate Elena Marcos famous Salem Bluff. And it's going to be an interesting one. It's uh, technically two recipes in one, but they yeah. operate together. There is a dessert and a sauce that we have to prepare. So um, we're going to go check out this maybe scary recipe, and then we'll be back to let you know how it turned out, and to get into Suspiria. Let's get sauced. from the kitchen and we just did our first run of the Elena Marcos famous famous Salem fluff, Salem fluff. and um, <laughs> I will say this I'm really scared but I the presentation I mean I feel like Dario Argento would be proud of this I think cherry could, sauce I it think is, you could find this in a dessert shop it looks like it would it's be. giallorific it's real so. red Super red. Oh my god. So I guess we'll dig into it and react in real time. <laughs> yeah. We'll try to not make too much eating noise. I will say it doesn't taste bad. This is a difficult one for me a little bit. I'm not a big fan of the texture of coconut shavings. I don't like that oh, they're I so chewy. I so, love okay. coconut. So it's coconuts, it's walnuts, it's eggs, and um, honey. Um, maraschino cherries. And cherries. Supposed to use Bing cherries, but we figure that's pretty much the same thing. We well, yeah, All we right. just we opted for maraschino actually strategically because they were more giallo red. The color was the color was necessary. Yeah. Okay, this actually tastes a lot better than I thought it was going to, I'm gonna be honest. And so last time last episode we did the pumpkin pie in a mug, and I think all in all it took us about ten minutes, like from throwing ingredients in the mug to eating it, it was like 10 minutes. This took us like an hour. It's kind of crazy that we put it in the microwave. It should have just gone in the oven, but... It took a lot of prep time, but... I'm staying true to the theme. Yeah, so this is definitely like... But it's totally like a 1970s um, dessert. So probably, you know, the time that the original Suspiria was made... And that the new Suspiria was taking place. It does, it kind of has like a German dessert feel to it too, I guess mm. with the walnuts. Yeah, it's definitely, it definitely fits the, the pattern of something you'd find at a, a 1970s, late 60s dinner party kind of thing. Yeah. It would be the dessert. And I will say that um, 
I made a boo-boo, and uh, I uh, did not use uh, the baking powder that we were supposed to because I mistook it for some sugar. Yeah, I think if you had included the baking powder, we would like this dessert. I like, think it would have been a, Yeah, so I'm, I am sorry about that. I would maybe even be like, hey, guys, try this. It's good. Yeah. I think it's still worth recommending, probably, just I do. with the added you know value of putting yeah. in the right ingredients. If you want a vintage dessert, this is it. It is it is really sweet. It is. Um, that sauce is it's pretty tart. Yeah. So, um, okay. I mean, I feel like it's kind of at least I'm gonna give it one thumb up, I guess. I'll give it one thumb up. I'll go all the way with one. Okay, cool. Well, um, we're gonna finish up our dessert and then we're gonna get into some Suspiria talk. Some heavy Suspiria so, yeah, action. So stick around. And it will be sticky because of these cherries. So don't go anywhere. So for the uninitiated, let's start at the beginning. Kind of, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this probably have seen Suspiria, but I think it'd be good to just start with what is Suspiria? Suspiria is a 1977 horror film by Dario Argento. It was conceived by him and his uh, wife it was at the his time. Wife at, at the time, time. Dario Nicolodi. The idea of it, I guess, germinated from a story about her, a family member of hers who went to a famous dance school in Eastern Europe. And there seemed to be something strange going on at the school that was a little bit above just dance. Um, and so there was this idea that they were also teaching witchcraft there. Uh, and so they created this story wherein an American girl arrives at this German dance school and she automatically walks into something where a woman is running out of the building screaming and she gets there the next day and learns that someone has been murdered and she slowly becomes aware that something strange is afoot at the school. And it gets crazier from there because it's, it's more or less, it's kind of like a slasher film. Uh, it's part of the the giallo tradition from from Italy, and that's there's a lot of stabbing and a lot of blood. Uh, but this one's a little bit different because of the supernatural element. Absolutely, and another thing. So as Nick mentioned, um, the story did come from uh, you know supposedly from Daria's grandmother or great grandmother mm. or something along those lines. Um, also, because it, of where the school is located in Argento Suspiria. There is almost this like magical uh, idea around, but it's this part of Europe where it's the Black Forest in Germany. Yes, where uh, France, Germany, and Switzerland all come together. So mm -hmm. it's these three points, which kind of echoes or goes plays into um, the story. Kind of revolves around the three mothers. Mm -hmm. So um, these are the three almost sort of like primordial like spirits very powerful witches that Argento will go on to cover uh Suspiria is the first the first Suspiria is yes which is mother of size so then the second mother um the mother of darkness is covered in the follow-up Inferno and then the final film of the trilogy is titled Mother of Tears so again there are these three very powerful witches and the story sort of traces how they are trying to maintain their power in sort of the modern world. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to Suspiria, there is this witch that is at the heart of the um, dance academy. Um, what's also interesting about this is apparently uh, Daria had 
and and Daria were sort of very intrigued by the Waldorf schools because they had kind of come under fire at this point in time. And again, those originated in Germany. And there was some controversy about the uh, curriculum of these schools and were they in fact teaching magic or witchcraft. So that all kind of served as a base to this dance academy that was formed. And so Suspiria is interesting in and of itself as a story. It's a it's a, a interesting mix of of, of violence and creepiness and uh, but it's a really interesting film also because it's it's a really for a horror movie it's a really beautiful film there was an earlier italian director named mario bava who one of the big things that he did or brought to brought to his films was this really wild uh lighting scheme where you would have like technicolor colors just lit on backgrounds and walls and windows and everything lots of reds and greens and blues primary colors and another thing about that is that uh argento actually cited um and of course in addition to bava but um snow white Dis walt disney's snow white was a huge reference point for this film and again you know not only the fact that there is a witch in snow white but mainly that color scheme as well and the um, set design a little bit too because absolutely. in the um in Madame Blanc's office, there's a big kind of Escher-like mural, and it has a few uh, colorful irises on there mm -hmm. that look very much like they would come from a Disney film. And it also has echoes of being a, like a twisted version of a of a Disney film or a fairy tale because of the fact that these are older actresses, but the way that the sets are designed, it's almost like some of the doors they made with the handles almost at eye level so oh, they yeah. kind of look small but you're looking at them at normal height yeah that kind of reminds me of alice in wonderland even mm -hmm. a little bit like in the disney animation they play especially a lot with that just size proportion and um you brought up an interesting thing that i, I mean which i always thought was really strange about this because um i guess they're supposed to be younger girls mm -hmm. but you couldn't have younger girls in this type it of film. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, and and I don't even know that it, it... I don't know why that was a part of the story, that they would be younger. Because, I don't know, it, to me it feels like they would be older girls anyway. I mean, not like older, but at least um, later teens. Or I thought of it as more of like an early, like university age. Well, yeah, and the story the story kind of puts them in that position too. Because they're renting out apartments in town. They're, exactly. they're paying their own rent. They're, yeah. they're, they are older. Like it's almost acknowledged that they're, they're that, you know, like when they're 20s right. or something. Right, so it, that was kind of a strange thing. But maybe it was <clears throat> just to, maybe it was more of a visual technique that Argento wanted you to kind of put them in almost that little girl headspace mm -hmm. when they were in the academy, you know, to be more afraid of things. Yes, yeah, I think it's to signal that what's happening in the academy is not quite right. And since it's a more of a fairy tale, you think of that being generally like younger girls or children or it's centering around that, you know, their stories mm -hmm. typically for children. So maybe that was the whole thing there. But anyway, yeah, in the film it's another part of the film that's that's I think it's that's lasted as long as the film itself is the music from Goblin. It's like a psychedelic vibe on top of the colors, on top of the strange sets and this kind of labyrinthine non-plot. Uh, it's this crazy music that's very primal. It's it's a lot of heavy bass drums, uh, weird wailing, and, and whispers, which I think plays into the Suspiria Mother of Sighs thing because it's a very uh, sonically driven film. And the whole thing creates... It, it's the, the movie is not really scary anymore because the effects aren't crazy, uh, but 
it's it's a mood. It's a very moody film, and it's effective. It's all I think, about probably. atmosphere. Absolutely, I think it's because of that. An insular atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the new film by director Luca Guadagnino. And speaking of atmospheres, this film very much has a spectacular atmosphere as well. Again, very insular, but it is completely different mm-hmm. and um, goes in a very different direction while I think also staying very true to paying respect to the original film. Yeah, because the new one, uh, when Luca Guadagnino set out, was was took on the movie and and set out to make this remake, he didn't want to do a remake of Suspiria because Suspiria is a big film in Italian film culture as a stereo argento. And so what he did is he kind of went back, took the movie away, and just stuck with the original screenplay. So the film, the new film basically is patterned off of the original story, and then there's a whole other movie going on around it. Yes, and what I liked is, you know, I've heard a couple of interviews and things like that where they say it's a reimagining mm-hmm. of Dario Argento. So, again, yeah, like you said, not going off the film, but going off of Dario and Daria's screenplay. They do go into weaving. So, again, the movie picks up in 1977, which is when the original film was released, um, it's transported from Munich to Berlin. That's right. And so there is this political element that's there. And the film has been getting a lot of criticism for like, oh, there's too much with this political elements. And why did they bring all this in? And honestly, I, I disagree with those. I think it was very important to, because the film is, the story is so insular, but I think I like how he puts that in context of the world around it mm-hmm. and lets you know what's going on. And I kept thinking when I was watching the film is that there is all this craziness going on in the outside world. Um, it is taking place during, after the war. And so it's really crazy. There's a lot of bombings and stuff going on. With the RAF. Yes. Bottermeinhof game. And exactly. And so, and the the um, hijacking of the plane, like all that, that's touched on. And again, it's I think it's putting you in context because... The dance studio, when you first enter it in the beginning of the story, it feels almost like a safe haven. It's isolated from that world outside, but what the story is going to tell you is that you have no idea how much crazier it really gets once you get further into the academy. And visually, it's interesting because it is the the entrance to this to the academy is located within 20, 30 feet of the Berlin Wall. So it is just beyond the wall. Like, it's just the other side. It's you, you leave the natural world and you enter into the dance studio. And I think on the topic of, of why this stuff is there uh, in this new version of it, it's supposed to give this film a sense of... It's a historical context. It makes the, the reality of the world... It's situating this fantastical world in the real world. And the power struggles within the Bader-Meinhof gang, within the German country, it's being divided by the wall and by a lot of... Like, you know, these radical elements versus this new government, um, part of the Soviet Union. And it's supposed to make, to ground the fantastical parts of the film because there's a power struggle within the coven in in the film. And so it's supposed to kind of mimic that. Yeah, it does a really good job of mirroring that. And, uh... There are a lot of mirrors in this film as well. They serve as portals into these other layers and deeper layers and deeper meanings of the film. It keeps the fairy tale element from the original in a way. Absolutely. And um, so, 
you know, and then going into that, so where it gets a little different is you have, once again, Susie Banyan coming in and arriving at the dance school, but in this film, she is coming from Ohio. She's part of a Mennonite community, which again has the German, there's the German tie-in there, um, as they were a German settlement in America. There's an the element of splitting, because them and Exactly, because the... they split off as well, so that kind of continues that rivalry, East and West. I mean, you look at, you know, even taking back to Wizard of Oz, there's the East and West there as well. That's, mm. So all those things are kind of mirrored and related through the story, which I thought was really clever. Um, and she's coming into the school, and I think her being sort of from an outsider, being from America, gave her that naivety that played into her character. And one of the big differences in this movie, I think, is that Susie, in the first film, she's not she's by no means helpless but she's kind of a passive observer she's being dragged kind of kicking and screaming into this situation that she was completely unaware of um in the second one or in the second in the remake she she grows in the film like she she kind of comes into her own but she she feels it from the beginning like she's not she's not a complete outsider there is something pulling her to that academy you see from a very early age it's like she's meant to get yeah there. it's a little bit like destiny and I think part of that has to do with a sense of belonging because she comes from a Mennonite environment where it's a lot of uh, restricted femininity, but then she goes into an entirely female environment in an entirely, almost entirely female film. Yeah, I mean, that is one thing that really struck me with this film was how loaded it was with femininity and just from the fact that it was an almost all-female cast. Um, Tilda Swinton, who is one of the stars of the film, plays three very important roles um one of them even being a male character but under heavy makeup right and but still being played by a female um so that feminine energy very much carries the film even a lot of thought went into the costume design i was really into that part of the film um so the costume designer uh julia piersanti she created all these really i thought spot on costumes with Tons of very feminine, and um, drew. She drew on. Um, there was a magazine that was basically thought of. It was called Sybil, and it was basically the socialist version of Vogue. And she pulled from that for a lot of the shapes of the clothing. And so, um, I thought it was cool that a lot of the pieces were made, especially for this film. Um, even down to the fabrics being created. So she used a lot of drawings that were based on art from Louise Bourgeois. So there were a lot of these, you would think they were little flowers that were woven into the fabric, but they might actually be female anatomy. It it does feel like um, that flower is kind of blooming and it's getting more and more feminine as the film goes on. Female, it really is kind of pointing to a lot of the tone of the film is that sort of female wrath. And I think that's kind of very timely and again the there is the political undertones of the film from the time but i think they're also like current um, well there are definitely a lot of lines like lines in the script that point to the way that men perceive women and female behavior <laughs> and uh and just kind of the societal roles that women should fill but in this film they're entirely encased in this in 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 dance in in expression of of feminine power Yes. And that goes with the witch part of it, too. It's almost kind of reclaiming the idea of the witch, because there is there is definitely the element of the bad witch. They're doing a lot of evil things within the studio. But 
but there's a, a feeling that there's a different way of going about things. Right. No, absolutely. And I think that is the thing. I mean, you hit on something too in a very, you know, there's a lot of talk currently about, you know, the patriarchy and all that. And I think that, um, you know, the witch being perceived as evil and, and to your point, I mean, there was definitely some evil happening there, but maybe that was a buildup of being sort of suppressed and that power being denied. So like you said, to kind of reclaim that power, it needed to be a little bit violent. It needed to be ugly for you to feel that raw emotion. And I think that emotion in the rawest form is one of the things that uh, Luca Guadagnino does best in this film. I think even the finale uh, is just this big explosion yeah. of, kind of literally, of, of this power and this wrath and this, this feminine energy. Yeah, and I do think, like, even you, we talked about this a lot, but, uh, you know, there are, the le there are visual levels to the film. And I thought about a lot of Dante's Inferno where it's just, you're going deeper and deeper into the layers of hell, if you will. And you visually go lower and lower into the building to get the more truth and the more knowledge that's revealed, the deeper you are into the heart of the building. Mm -hmm. And I think that does culminate in the fat finale. There is getting to the heart of what this film has been all about. So yeah, and then you brought up, you know, the expression of dance. So obviously there's a lot of dance in this film, um, and it's really beautiful and I think a powerful part of the visual component. That was, so Tilda Swinton plays Madame Blanc, one of the characters she plays. And she is the dance instructor. And her character draws a lot of inspiration from the dancer Pina Bausch. And then also um, Mary Wigman. So two German uh, dancers that were doing very... Uh, sort of avant-garde things in the world of dance, taking it to the next level. Pina Bausch and Mary Wigman both were known for sort of this tons, tons theater. So like dance theater, that became their thing. And it's the Tons Dance Academy. So that's a nice little nod there. Um, but, you know, Mary Wigman even had this um, very expressionist dance called the Haxentons, uh, so the witch dance. And... Mm -hmm. That's perfect. <laughs> That's a huge component of the film. And then the music of that, which was beautiful. Yeah. Um, the soundtrack in this film, I think, is also kind of a big deal, just like Goblin doing the original, because uh, it's done by Tom York of Radiohead. And it and it covers a lot of ground. It's a very different score, because like, the original was kind of an intense prog rock uh, style. But this one is, there's a lot of piano. There's a lot of um, lilting and drifting melodies and but it's a mix it also has some moments where it goes kind of like a dark experimental ambient tone it it's very much more of a, a it's a weird word for me to use but it's a sensual thing. yeah it's a well, very it's a feeling it's very much like it kind of hits you in the heart sometimes it it gets a little bit weird and there's some some heavy moments but it's uh, i think he really took to heart um the idea of that sort of feminine mystique and i felt like that came across because listening to the soundtrack, which I've listened to a lot lately and even removing it outside of the film, there's some beautiful moments in it. And it's, it does have much more of a feminine feel than the goblin. It goblin had a lot of like, you know, it's more testosterone and this feels very imbued with like estrogen, that mm -hmm. female essence. Yeah. And so, yeah, as you can see, there is a, there's a lot going on in the new Suspiria and it's been a, 
among horror fans, especially fans of the original, it's been a pretty divisive film because of just, because of, as we said, it being overstuffed. But mm-hmm. I personally, I've seen it twice now, and I loved it both times. I was completely drawn in, thought it was a beautiful film. It's completely different, and that's a totally okay thing for it to be two separate films. I agree. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, collectively, we've seen this film five times. I went and saw this film three times. I was kind of in shock Lord. when it ended. Um, but the more I've seen it, the more I've grown to love it. Mm. And that was a hard sell because when I originally heard that they were going to even think about doing a remake of this film, I was kind of horrified. But I think every step of the way, it's been a different feeling. It has been. And I think it really stayed true to the feeling in so many levels and yet became its own creation. Um, and it's, it's, it's a gorgeous film. Um, and yeah, I completely recommend it. So if you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. Uh, and I think if you can see it in the theater, it's absolutely worth it because it really does lend to that atmosphere that is that was worked so hard to be created, I feel like, for this mm-hmm. film. It's nice to be kind of encased in that in that space. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I guess that about wraps it for this episode. That's episode two. Yep. And um, thank you all for listening and um, for extra content or extra thoughts that we may have, because this was a really hard one to just <laughs> wrap into. I feel like we could have gone on forever about Suspiria. We both love these films so much. Um, but for extra stuff, go to inandoutofframe.com. Or check us out on Instagram and SoundCloud at In and Out of Frame. I'm Andrea. I'm Nick. And you've been listening to In, In and, and Out of Frame. frame.